Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. As I mentioned earlier, uh, this sermon has been hard fought for me. Um, Interestingly, it's a seemingly simple passage uh, that we're going to be in this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. If you want to start flipping there, you may. But it's, a, it's been a difficult prep for me this week. I, I, you know, I love studying the Word. And I love to understand what God has given us, and I, I want to make sure that we are a church formed by the Word of God. And I, I found myself deep in consternation about this passage not because it conflicted with anything in me, but because I was uncertain of how it might be received. So I'm going to lay all the cards on the table, and I hope that you all will be charitable to me this morning as we uh, go through this passage. My concern is that this sermon may be misconstrued in one of two ways. You might walk away from this sermon thinking, well, Greg is saying that Uh, We should just accept everybody who says that they're a Christian, and maybe even those who aren't Christians, no matter what they believe, and that we should be essentially universalists. We should just embrace everything everywhere. I'm not saying that today. You may also walk away from this sermon, again, if you hear me from the the wrong perspective, uh, saying that we should subdivide the church in every way possible so that no one ever has to practice a degree of tolerance. I hope that you'll hear from me that I'm saying neither of those things. But I wanted to lay it out there. I I am not saying that the church should be subdivided into the smallest possible parts, and I'm also not saying that we should embrace heresy. Okay. If you have issues with the way that the sermon has been preached, I promise you that If you come to either of those conclusions, then that is not my intention today. And to be honest with you, I think that a lot of this fear is mostly internal. I think you're going to hear this and you're going to receive it with gladness. I hope that you will, but uh, I experienced a large degree of fear this morning thinking about this passage and how I might preach it. And Pastor Brandon reminded me this morning, and I needed this this morning, so thank you, uh, that the reason this feels difficult to me is because God has called him and I to make some of these calls. What's sort of in bounds for this local church? What's out of bounds for this local church? Those are hard decisions. Those are decisions that that, that we remember poignantly as we make them. Um, If there are those who who feel that they they don't fit in here for some reason, that we've said, hey, like, this is uh, a questionable belief over here, and I don't think that we can partner with that, or for any number of reasons that we might divide um, or separate, I should say. Uh, those are hard-fought decisions. They hurt our hearts because we desire the unity of the body of Christ. We want everyone to come and, and just believe the gospel and to apply that to our lives together, but sometimes we run into issues of conscience. You see, the, the church is one of my, my favorite subjects because God made the church for our good. The church is a good thing. 
If you're here this morning, I think you might believe that. Can I get an amen from somebody that believes the church is a good thing? Awesome. I'm not alone. Excellent. But he also made the church out of sinners, saved by grace. The first part is great, that God gave it to us for our good. The second part makes it messy, doesn't it? If you think you have the world's most rock-solid, airtight, perfectly formed ecclesiology, simply take it to church. You're going to find out it wasn't quite as perfect as you'd hoped when you encounter sinners saved by grace. That's not to say that we should cease to pursue better, though, in our ecclesiology and our understanding of the church. We should continuously seek to align ourselves more perfectly with the Word of God in both speech and action. But the goal is not arriving at perfection. That's for God to do on the other side of glory. The goal is to progress toward greater and greater unity, but not unity for unity's sake, unity under the rule of the Word of God. These days, the church is under attack as much as I think it has ever been. And there's a temptation for us to either divide in all sorts of different places rather than come together. There's a temptation to receive everything because otherwise you're intolerant or you don't cause people to to belong and include them. But the Holy Spirit holds us together more closely to that which God has designed. And it's only by the power of the Spirit, mind you. If it was left up to us, if God simply said, this is the way the church should be, and it was left to us, we'd destroy it. But the Holy Spirit continues to bind us together. In this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, we are warned against division and quarreling. This is one of Satan's favorite tactics in making the church ineffective. A divided church is an ineffective church. Now, the gates of hell will not prevail against the big C church, the body of Christ, universal. But Satan may prevail for a time over individual churches by turning them in upon one another or by severing their bonds with other churches. Before we read this text and really dive in, though, I want to tell you up front that this sermon is not a sermon against multiple churches in the same geographic area. Some people might think that, well, we just need to have one church in each geographical area and everybody goes to that one church. I don't think that's a great argument because of issues of conscience, issues of interpretation. We're imperfect people, and I'll get there in a moment. This is also not a sermon against denominations. I think actually denominations are sometimes very good when they can cooperate with one another in the gospel. This is also not a sermon against clear doctrine. Many people have said that doctrine divides, and that is true to an extent. But doctrine informs our practice, and without sound doctrine, all is lost. This is a sermon about unity and harmony in the life of the local church, and how that extends to the farthest reaches of the body of Christ. And I hope that you'll receive that with gladness today. That there will be a spirit of charity and unity amongst us inside of this church and outside of this church that maybe is uncommon in our culture today. I want that to be informed by the word of God. I don't want us to embrace heresy, and yet I want us to embrace brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we disagree. And I want us to start having conversations rather than disputations. My hope this morning is that we will be more unified as a local church and that that would go from this place and that we would continue to seek for unity 
as we can in the broader body of Christ. So in light of that, let's go ahead and read the passage this morning. Why don't you stand with me as we read the word of God this morning? Out of reverence, we stand for the word of God. You can think what you will about my sermon, but you cannot dispute the word of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 16 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. Lord, I pray this morning that you would grant us a spirit of charity toward one another. The Lord holds one another accountable to believe what you've written in your word, that what you've given us is true and that we should apply it. And yet, Lord God, is gracious and patient toward one another. I pray, Lord God, that this, this burden I feel for unity in the church, yet without compromise in belief, Lord, that that would, Lord, that that would be a, a good desire and that you would show that to us. I pray, Lord God, that this would be a unified church, Lord, even where we disagree, where we would experience charity and goodwill toward one another, that, Lord, we would be unified in the body of Christ. Lord, may that be something that you ever push us toward, greater and greater unity in the body of Christ. We pray for this. We ask for this. We ask that you would reveal it to us in our minds and in our hearts. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, as many of you know, um, I am, uh, my uh, pastoral ministry is, uh, is, is my calling, but it's not my job. Does that make sense? It's my calling, but it's not my job. During the day, I work as a software engineer managing a team of other software engineers, and uh, one of my responsibilities in that job is to lead my team in defining the work that we've been tasked with doing. Does that make sense? Like, we get a, a task in, and we begin to define it more completely. For example, someone decides that they want to see whether a green button or a blue button, I, I do web development, so just bear with me, like, but this would be pretty obvious, like, go to a website, green button or blue button, okay? Uh, somebody says, that I want to see whether a green button or a blue button gets more clicks. It's my job to lead my team to ask the relevant questions to get a general idea of how difficult that might be. So, you know, can, can we change the color of that button? Can we measure what, uh, how many people click on each one? Can we do that in a way that's, that's reproducible so that if somebody wants to add a third color button that we can check on that too? Once we've sort of asked all the relevant questions, and believe me, this is a simplistic sort of example, but I'm hoping that everybody kind of jive with me, right? But once we've answered those relevant questions and kind of understood, understood the full scope of the work, then we attempt to come to a consensus, an agreement on how much time it might take to accomplish that work. Is it one day? Is it two days? Is it five days? 
If it's more than four or five days, we generally determine to break the work down into smaller chunks. But we, we kind of put this out there. We've defined the work. Everybody seems to have the same understanding of the work. And then the last thing that we do, the last part of the process, is determining the, determining the level of effort for the task. It's pretty simple. We pull up the, the chat window in our Zoom. How many of you have used Zoom over the course of the past few years? Yeah. You go to Zoom and you open the chat window and I say, okay, everybody, type the number of days you think this task is going to take in the chat. Everybody types their numbers. And then I say on the count of three, press enter. One, two, three, everybody pushes enter. Keeps everybody kind of honest, right? Keeps them from being unaffected by one another, hopefully. What's funny, though, is that given all the same information, all of these software engineers almost never agree perfectly. We are all relatively experienced. We kind of know what the, the job, but it's very rare that everyone agrees. We all have different levels of experience. Maybe we have different experiences, different levels of understanding. We have different paces of work uh, and, and so much more. I say all that to, to say if agreeing on the number of days a task might take for a particular project is a rarity amongst a team of just five to 10 experienced software engineers who do this on a daily basis. How in the world does Paul expect a much larger group of Christians to agree? Are you picking up what I'm laying down? Five to 10 people disagree on the number of days a little piddly task is going to take. How can Paul say, I want you all to agree with no divisions? It's a tall order. In fact, he says more than simple agreement in word. He says that you should be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The Greek words behind uh, that simple English word agree in verse 10. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions. That is schisms among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Those Greek words behind the, that simple English word agree are more literally translated, speak the same words. I think it's something like autologi or something like that. I don't remember exactly, but it's, it's essentially speak the same thing. So he says, I want you to say the same stuff. I want you to speak the same word. I want you to, to agree with one another in speech. And then lest he be misunderstood, he heaps on and says that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. So he didn't want them to simply be united in speech, saying the same kinds of stuff. He wanted them to actually be unified in mind. He said, come on, guys, come together. Be of similar judgment. Be of the same judgment. Be of the same mind. I, I admit that I was uh, a bit taken aback by the absolute nature the seemingly absolute nature of Paul's command here. No divisions? No disagreement? Is Paul saying that there should be one true church authoritatively produced downward from some structure that's above? He's saying, he's essentially saying, hey, like it should be akin to the Roman Catholic Church or something of that nature. I was taken aback by this, and so I, I was like, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how he plans to, 
to make good on this. How do, we, how do we do this? How do we practically become a church that's united like this? It has no disagreement, no division. How do we do that? So I began to imagine a church with no disagreement anywhere. Interesting little thought experiment. You can do this with me. All right? Just attempt to imagine a church. It could be a small church. Keep it small because it keeps things simpler. A small church in absolute agreement with no divisions right now. Imagine that in your mind. What might that look like? Just And lay aside that the church in absolute agreement on all matters of faith and practice just doesn't seem like a practical reality, okay? This is this thought experiment. Just bear with me. Let's say that all of us in this room, perhaps, agree absolutely and completely that the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant word, and it contains all that we need for Christian faith and life. Let's say we all agree on that. Some of us may not. I hope we do. Let's say that's the case. Our creed might simply be, the Bible is inerrant, inspired, and sufficient. That would be our tagline, right? That's the one thing that we're united around. We have perfect agreement. And uh, by the way, don't be afraid of the word creed. It simply means a formal statement of religious belief. This comes from the root word meaning to believe, meaning I believe this. So if we say the Bible is inerrant, inspired, and sufficient, it's a good creed to have. And I would argue it's actually one of the foundational presuppositions of the Christian faith. Because if you don't believe that the Bible is true in some way, then why would you entrust your eternal soul to said book. The Holy Spirit has to testify to our hearts that the Bible is true. But it's a good creed to have. Say that, say that that was us today. That was the one thing we were united around. Anyways, uh, I, sorry, I, I digress from that. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about going somewhere else. But we're perfectly united in that creed, okay? All of us. Here's what happen, happens next, all right? you start reading the Bible. If the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God as a church, well, unless you're going to make it an idol, then you should probably read it. Yeah? Can everybody say amen to that? Read the Bible. Amen. All right. So if it's God's inspired and errant and sufficient word, then we need to read it. But reading the Bible presents a huge problem, doesn't it? When, it, when we're thinking about agreement. It requires us to develop conclusions. It requires us to engage our minds as we read and to go, well, what did God say? What does he mean when he says these things? What precisely do you believe God has said? That's the question. How then should you live your life? What should the church look like? Now, please understand me. I, I'm saying that the Bible, reading the Bible presents a huge problem uh, with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek, okay? It's not actually a problem, but it, it does cause disagreement at times. See, I don't think that this is a problem to be avoided, but I mean it's a problem because it, when we start developing conclusions about what God has said in his perfect scriptures, we get added to the mix. And when you add sinful creatures who are limited in their understanding into the mix, you inherently get differences. God's word says what God's word says, period. Absolute source of truth, correct? However, each of us individually may interpret it differently on different points. 
All differences in doctrine, though, arise from a combination of our limitations as human beings and our sin. And I would argue that our limitations probably wouldn't even hinder us in understanding God's word if it weren't for the sin. But it's hard to tell where that sin's creeping in. It's hard to understand what's going on there. So here we are, limited and sinful, disagreeing about what the Bible says and how it applies. And in glory, we will have perfect doctrine. I look forward to that day. I'm looking forward to seeing, like, Martin Luther sitting next to Erasmus. Uh, He wrote a rather scathing uh, book called The Bondage of the Will Against Erasmus. Uh, And I, I I long to see them just sitting there next to each other, just going, man, like, we both had some stuff wrong, didn't we? Or like him, or, or Erasmus going, and this is my opinion of the situation, Erasmus going, man, Martin, you were right. I'm sorry, dude. And he's like, man, you had some good points. That's okay. And I'm glad we got to have this conversation because that book is incredible. It's helpful to the church. God worked things for good there. But we might come to different conclusions here and now. You might think that there are two, three, or more offices in the church. At Mosaic, we believe there are two. Pastor, elder, that's one office, and deacon. So two offices in the church. But you might believe, you might come to the conclusion that there are bishops and overseers, which are different offices. Other people have done this. That's the, that's the Episcopal structure of church. Not the Episcopal church, but an Episcopal structure. Okay? You might come to the conclusion that there are more than three. I don't know. Some believe that even pastor and elder are separate offices, that there are actually three offices, pastor, elder, deacon. That's different somehow. Like I said, we're a two-office church, so there you go, in case you're wondering. In case any of you had questions about where we stand with uh, church officers. But you might think of all these different ways that People could come to different conclusions on these things. And these are all reasonable conclusions from well-meaning, educated, spirit-led people. People come to different conclusions on these things. So what are we to do? Because in reality, you can't be, you can't be a church and say, well, we're going to have all these forms of government. You can't do it. It's either or. You have to choose one, right? So what are we to do? I believe that Paul in this first verse is pressing us to strive for unity not only in word but in thought. And that this may be impossible, this side of heaven. Indeed, Romans 14.5 says one person esteems one day better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be convinced fully in his own mind. This passage reminds us that some people are going to have differences of opinions on some things. There will not be perfect agreement this side of heaven. But even in disagreement, I think we can strive to maintain unity and seek conversation rather than disputation, as I've already said. The Corinthian church was a wreck because they had divided along these imaginary lines of demarcation that had begun to form, and they began to tear themselves apart. That's what that that word divisions here means. It's better translated schisms has a a connotation of a ripping of a piece of fabric. Hard to put back together the same way it was. It's a violent thing. He says, let there be no 
schisms among you. And ultimately, the Corinthians were divided over their pride. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. It says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Just a side note, going to church leadership and, and saying, hey, the, like, I think this person might be in sin, is not, it's not gossip, okay? It's for the good of the church. Chloe went to Paul because she was concerned about the church. They were in disagreement with one another. They were causing schisms and they were fighting with one another. It's a good thing that God has given us the structure of the church. But then he says, what I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Do you know that people love to belong? You know that? Some head nods. People love to belong. Leave aside all the politics of that word, by the way, and just think about it. You may not feel like you belong with your friends sometimes. It's a kind of a bad feeling. Or you might feel like you really belong with your family. You might feel like you really belong in this church or in your job. And when you don't feel like you belong in some of these areas, things feel a little broken sometimes, don't they? You feel like you're kind of out of place. This desire for a sense of belonging is, is, can be good at times. We want to try to find places where where we can be happy and, and feel good about ourselves. Okay, sure, that can be good. But sometimes that desire for belonging to, can lead us into an unhealthy tribalism. Look, okay, example. I forgot to bring it with me. Oh, well. I love manual writing implements. Okay, like some of you are go going, oh, this guy, like, he's using these weird words. But... Some of, some of, look, I know there, there's been some dispute in a certain community group as to whether my bio is true or not. <laughs> I'm calling y'all out. Um, it is true. It is true. I love manual writing implements. I like fountain pens. I like a solid premium pencil, like cedar, good graphite. There is a difference, people. Not just the cheap little Ticonderoga pencils you had when you were a kid, all right? Like, I, I use Blackwing pencils, and they are great. They write so smoothly, and the smell of graphite and cedar is amazing. I love that y'all are laughing at me right now. Yeah, I, I love this stuff. It's so good. In fact, it's, uh, it's really, like, it's really uh, much to my chagrin that um, I was so consternated by prepping this sermon that like, I felt as though I needed to do it electronically so that I could like, rearrange stuff and retype and do a lot more writing than I maybe normally would. Um, I'm a lot faster at editing on, a, on an iPad than I am scribbling on a piece of paper. So, um, But the last few weeks, I've, I've been bringing my, my notebook with me into the pulpit, and that's what I've been preaching from, and I love that. Like, just the smell of, like, paper and cedar, and, like, it's, it's such a great thing. I love it. Some of you may not love that, but, like, I guarantee that many of you probably enjoy some sort of hobby or an activity that maybe no one else you know truly loves. Wouldn't it be nice, though, to belong? Wouldn't it be nice to have a club or a group of some sort where you could discuss the intricacies of these things and show off your skills or your collections? Of course, I'm not much of a collector. I like to use the stuff I get, but like, still, I wouldn't mind waxing poetic a little, right? There's different kinds of graphite in these blackwing pencils that I use, and I can talk about each one. 
It's kind of fun. Y'all are laughing at me. I love it. All right, just, it's okay. You can laugh at me. But that kind of belonging is great, isn't it? It's great. You know what's not so great? What's not so great is when the fountain pen people and the pencil people start fighting one another about which one is better. Okay? Like you get on Reddit. Look, there's, there's subreddits for this. Fountain pens and pencils, right? I promise it's there. There's like 10 of us. Um, but when they, when they get to fighting with one another about which one is better, I'm like, they're different things for different purposes, people. Like, it's okay. Sometimes you might prefer one or of, one of the other. You don't have to use one to exclusion. But that's unhealthy tribalism, isn't it? In the same way we can do the same things in, in the church. The people of Corinth had divided along these kinds of imaginary lines. Some claimed to follow Paul, and I would argue what he's saying here is to the exclusion of Apollos and Cephas, that's Peter, and Christ. Or some claimed to follow Christ even to the exclusion of his apostles and teachers. Paul calls them out too, interestingly. He's saying, you're dividing along these crazy places. But look, the reality is we've, as the American church, I've seen it with my own eyes, have divided, among, or divided ourselves amongst kind of dumber stuff. Let's be real. I'm just trying to be real honest here. They had begun to divide, and ultimately pride was the root of that sin. In fact, pride is the root of many subsequent sins, whether it's division in the church or otherwise. Think of the, the first sin, Eve taking the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She takes that because she is prideful enough to believe that she should be like God and can grasp it. Pride is the root of a lot of sin, if not all sin, I don't know. Don't quote me on that. The people of Corinth had divided because they prided themselves in following Paul, who was the most effective missionary. He was a church planter. They were about Paul. They were like, yeah, church planting, let's follow Paul. And then the other people were like, well, but no, I follow Apollos. He's the most eloquent speaker because Paul came preaching the simple gospel and Apollos came preaching the more complex spiritual things of life. And others were saying, well, I follow Peter. He was the perhaps the highest earthly authority in the church at the time. And then others would say, well, I, I follow Christ to the exclusion of all the others. Imagine if all you had was the Gospels and you eschewed any teaching whatsoever ever, other than those. The Christian faith would look very different. Let me just put it that way. Look very different. God gave the apostles to the church to teach us what it meant to be saved, what it meant to live as called out people. But similar lines are drawn today, aren't they? And I've gotten some flack in the past for using the term Calvinist in a public setting like this because of this passage. I, I've been told by some that it seems as though I imply that I follow Calvin to the exclusion of others <laughs> or that I worship him, which is absolutely not the case on either. So I just want to be clear. Just I'm going to break this down for just a moment. I'm going to get off my soapbox after this, I promise. 
When I say Calvinist, I am simply and succinctly stating my theological position on the sovereignty of God and salvation. This is not an attempt to divide, but it's an attempt to put all my cards on the table. I want you to know what I believe, how I'm going to preach. I want you to know something about me theologically, something I find very important outside of and under the gospel. This is not an attempt to divide. It's, it, I just want you to know where I stand, and I want you to understand me, and I want to understand you. And I want us to have a conversation. I want us to go back and forth on this stuff. It's good. It's good for me. It's good for you. I, I sat down with Ben. I'm sorry, Ben, I haven't fully completed on my promise to you on this, but I sat down with Ben maybe a couple months ago now, uh, maybe more than that, uh, and I was like, man, we should, we should go to the, the 1689, the confession of faith that we have as a, as a church, and we should just pour through it. And if, the, if we find areas of agreement, then let's celebrate that. Like, let's go, yes, amen, this is great. See where it is in the scriptures. And then where we find areas of disagreement, I'm not saying Ben's the only person with whom I might disagree in the church, okay? Like, I'm just, I'm sorry, dude. Him and I have a good, cover, good uh, relationship for me to do this, I think. I, though I didn't tell him beforehand. Anyway, <laughs> can't stop me now. Um, but like, we're going to sit down, we're going to figure this out, and we're, in areas where we disagree, we can sit down as Christian brothers, and we can work through stuff together. And we may find that we actually do agree, which is an amazing thing. We might drive at the same stuff and go, man, we were just using different terminology to really express ourselves here. Or we might find ourselves in disagreement over some matters, but we can look back and go, man, look at how great God is. That our consciences, are, we are fully convinced in our own minds, and we can still work together. Great things, great things from that. It would be difficult for me, for example, going back to the word Calvinist, or Reformed, different things, by the way, but there's some nuance there. Um, when I say that I'm a Calvinist, what I mean is, uh, I believe people are completely incapable of saving themselves. No one seeks for God. I believe God, the Holy Spirit, actively regenerates those whom the Father has predestined to receive forgiveness and life in God the Son. I believe the blood of Christ is perfectly effective for all of the elect, and not, just, not a single drop of his blood was spilled in vain. I believe that the grace of God operates upon sinners sovereignly, regenerating them and opening their eyes to the beauty of the gospel, and that by that change in nature, they exercise the faith given to them as new creatures, justif receiving justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And I believe that God will sustain those whom he has called and justified without exception, not a single one will drop from his hand. But it's a lot easier for me to say Calvinist. <laughs> I use those words. I'm not trying to drive a wedge. I'm trying to clarify a distinction that I pray will lead us to all sorts of wonderful places, trying to work with one another to figure stuff out that it will lead us back to the word to go, is that true? And where it is, I pray that we will all accept it with gladness. And if it's not, I pray that we will all be corrected with gladness. I have to admit, though, it's easy to veer off into tribalism when it comes to theology. It's easy to, to go, well, this is my camp. I only listen to people in my camp. I've been there. <laughs> I've, I've been there personally, and I've, I've, I've been to that church. 
Let me simply warn you that if you are unwilling to learn from or be challenged by anyone not in your camp, you're probably the one that's in error. Sure, beware of heresy, please. If a lot of people are saying, hey, that's heresy, start asking questions. Did I go there? But give due consideration to brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with you on one topic or another. Give due consideration. Where you agree, yes and amen that thing. Where you disagree, attempt a conversation, attempt to learn. Ask what else maybe can I learn? I disagree with you in this area, but over here you've got this stuff right. How can I learn from you in that area? You may find that you agree on more than you imagined with your brother or sister who's outside your camp. In fact, you should. Because if they're a brother or sister in Christ, then you agree on a lot. A lot. You agree on a Trinitarian God. You agree on salvation by grace through faith. You agree on who Jesus was, who he is. You agree on a great many things. Treat one another like brothers and sisters. Even when there's disagreement, even staunch disagreement in areas. Treat one another like family. Like we're one body. Read with me in verses 13 through 16. Paul kind of ends his argument here. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name, though I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. But beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. (laughs) First of all, I just want to get this out of the way. I love that Paul is like, thank God I didn't baptize most of you, because otherwise I'd be more embroiled in this whole controversy than I am now. He's like, that was just God's providence. It isn't that he's like, I'm glad I didn't baptize. It's that like, he's just like, in this circumstance, I'm really glad that I didn't get pulled into the muck with you as much as I could have. <laughs> I just love that he says that out loud. Um, people think I can be a little harsh at times. Paul was worse, okay? Um, but I, just, I just imagine that. And I, but I want us to focus on, on three words. And I, I, I'm not going to get into some of the rhetorical questions here, because I think that it's obvious. Was Paul crucified for you? Obviously not. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Obviously not. Right? But 13a, how you might reference it, those first three words in your ESV Bible, that's a question I want to ask today. Is Christ divided? Whew. Is Christ divided? Well, if you look at the, the church in the world today, you might go, well, maybe. Maybe. There are lots of divisions in the church these days. Some of them justified, I admit. Some of them not so much. I said it before, the word divided in verse 10, or uh, divisions in verse 10, has a different connotation, different root word uh, in, the, in the Greek than uh, than divided here in this passage. So in, in verse 10, we have a sense of schism, a ripping of fabric. 
it's violent, it's ragged and difficult to, re- to repair, right? That's the, that's the idea. It's kind of a violent tear. Whereas divided here is different. It's, it's a sense of, of apportioning. He says, is Christ apportioned, given piecemeal to some people? A little bit of Christ here, a little bit of Christ there, and separated. Is it, you know, has the, has the, the hand of Christ been, been divided from his body and then given over to this group? And then the foot of Christ been kind of hewn off and handed over to this group so that maybe in some total we have the body of Christ, but we don't all have the whole body of Christ. Paul's like, is Christ divided? The answer is no. The body of Christ is not divided. Christ is not divided. By the way, I'm interchanging the two because ultimately Christ is the head and we are the body, right? So, So in a sense, we are all part of Christ's body, right? So if, if Christ is not divided, then the body of Christ cannot be divided by definition, okay? If Christ were divided, then it would have made sense, I guess, for the church to divide itself and to go, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go off and do my thing here and, and we won't have fellowship or even talk to these people over here. It'd be easy to do that kind of thing if Christ were truly divided. It would have made sense to divide the church but Christ is not divided. And this causes tension, doesn't it? With how we see the world, with how we see the church in the world. It causes tension. It causes a lot of tension for me. Maybe you don't feel it as much as I do, but I feel it. Man, like, I, I want the body of Christ to be unified, and yet we sit apart from one another constantly, and we always bicker and fight like we aren't brothers and sisters, and it pains me. I want that unity. At the same time, I, I, I refuse to say, hey, we should go and violate our consciences on good doctrine for the sake of unity. So there's this tension I feel, and hopefully you feel some of that with me. But I want to say this. I, I think the, the body of Christ is big. I said it a couple of weeks ago. The body of Christ is big. It implies that, though, that the question here that uh, is, is Christ divided implies that there is such a thing as the body of Christ. So, I've mentioned earlier, like, we shouldn't get into, like, universalism, okay? We're not going to become a universal church just because we say the church is big, okay? Let's get away from that. But there's a certain thing called the body of Christ. And there are certain essential beliefs, then, which must exist in order to be part of that body. And the closest thing we have to an ecumenical statement of faith is the Apostles' Creed. That's, that's, that's kind of baseline Christianity, right? You want to skirt by by the skin of your teeth, theologically speaking, the, the Apostles' Creed, if you, if you can affirm that, you've got at least the start, okay? It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Admittedly, the phrase descended into hell requires some explanation. 
meaning is that he descended into the grave, that is the realm of the dead, not the eternal place of damnation. And the phrase Holy Catholic Church trips Protestants up. Some of you listened to that and you went, no, okay, don't worry. All that that phrase is trying to say is exactly what Paul said in this passage. There is one body of Christ. Small, small C Catholic, if we had it on the screens, which I, I didn't have time to do this morning, but if we had it on the scre- screens. Big C Catholic, Roman Catholic Church. Little C Catholic, the, the entire body of Christ. Okay, that's what that means. That's a basic statement of faith. And though there are many ways to find yourselves outside of the Christian faith while still affirming the, the Apostles' Creed, it's a good baseline to whether we can consider someone or a church a Christian church or a Christian individually or not. If you explicitly disagree with that statement of faith in, in any sort of way, you, you will probably find yourself outside of what we can define as Christianity. Does that make some sense? Look, separating from those outside of core Christian doctrine is not a division of the body of Christ. It's not. If someone is explicitly and clearly heretical, then cutting them out of communion with the rest of the body of Christ, it's a good thing. That's the removal of a cancerous tumor. Right? Leave it out. But I do believe that the body of Christ is big. Not, I said it a couple of weeks ago. Not, not every error is heresy. Okay? Not every error is heresy. The body of Christ is big. You might think one thing about what the Scripture says and another well-meaning, good-willed brother or sister in Christ may believe differently than you on this matter, and yet you're united in Jesus. I told Ash yesterday, and I, I said it again to Brandon this morning, I, I believe that there are two options for, for heaven, okay? When I get there, either... I'm going to see some people in heaven that I didn't expect. And I say, I say that fully understanding that like, my view of the, the body of Christ is relatively large. Like I try to be relatively big in where I draw that line for orthodoxy. Okay? So, but, but I fully hope, and it is my hope, that I will see people I didn't expect up there when I get there. That's option one. Option two is I'm not getting in. Option two is I'm not getting in. Because look, I just, I, if, if the body of Christ isn't big enough for people who have different sorts of opinions and beliefs on different things, like the probability that we've all got it right perfectly, if, that if God requires perfect theology to get into the pearly gates, it's, your probability of getting in is low. Just being honest. Mine, yours, everybody's. But I believe that the body of Christ is big. Within that big C church, we need to be careful, though, about degrees of separation. Go back in your mind to that perfectly agreeing church with their creed about biblical inerrancy, inspiration, and sufficiency. For a moment, in this church, this perfect church, supposedly perfect church, there's utopia, isn't there? There's perfect agreement. But then the problems start. They start reading the Bible and they come to different conclusions. Some wear hats, others don't. Some celebrate Christmas. Others say it's a pagan celebration. Some are iffy about Easter. They each have an opinion about 
carpet color of the new building. I'm walking this downward in, in the severity, okay? But let's be real. The church is divided over dumber stuff than the color of carpet in a sanctuary. So how might that new church, that church with perfect agreement for a moment, how might they deal with those new disagreements? The answer, the answer is it depends. <laughs> some, of you, some of you are going to go, man, I hate that answer. Yeah, me too. I hate that answer. I hate it depends answers. Oh, it frustrates me because I want to have one rule for every circumstance. It would be so nice. It would be so clear and easy. At least that's what my brain tells me. The reality is I'm a sinner, and I'd probably mess that up too. But it would be nice. But the reality is it depends on how we deal with those disagreements. When those disagreements, those differences arise, you essentially have two options, okay? The first option is to tolerate the difference. This allows continued, deeply interdependent cooperation. That's a good thing, isn't it? But if it's applied absolutely, the church would end up believing little in particular. You start broadening the doors until the point where there are no doors at all. Disagreeing on head coverings is one thing. But disagreeing on church government is another. As a local church, you have to make a choice. What's the church government structure going to be? If someone has a strong disagreement with that, if, if you sit here today and you have a strong disagreement against an elder-led church and you can't in good conscience sit here under the preaching of two elders and the deacons who, who help with all the other manual stuff. By the way, we don't have any deacons at the moment, but we will in the future. Um, but like, if you can't conscience that, I'm not asking you to violate your conscience, but you may, you may find yourself having to go elsewhere because we've made one, one call or another. That's, a, that's, like I said, the, the first option is to tolerate. And you may be able to tolerate that. Many people can tolerate that. They're more than happy to tolerate that, like, oh, well, like, we might disagree on the number of offices, but man, like, you preach the word, you preach the gospel, man, like, I'm here for it. That could be a great thing. Others may find their consciences truly hurt by seemingly smaller stuff. And I understand Nowhere in the word does it say that we should go and violate our conscience, that we should be convinced in our own minds. So that's why I say it depends. Anyway, the, the second option, though, so the first option is tolerance. We just tolerate the difference. We tolerate the, the, that, and, we, and then we, we can attempt to have those conversations even while we're working together, right? We can try to figure out if maybe we should adjust one way or the other. Maybe we should concern ourselves with, with this mode of government instead of one, another, whatever it is. Maybe we come to those conclusions together. That's the first option. It's tolerance and then discussion within the context of a local body. The second option, though, is to introduce degrees of separation. Okay? This isn't total division, by the way. But it may be, like I said, that the, the conscience of one does not allow uh, one group to uh, participate in worship with another group. If you are deeply and like completely convicted that we should sing the psalms only and we're singing modern worship songs, I, I don't think that you have any ground to stand on for hymns, by the way, uh, but because it says songs, hymns, spiritual songs. Anyway, uh, like, hymns, are, hymns were just popular 
longer ago. Personal opinion. Um, please don't take that as doctrine. We can have a discussion later, I promise. Um, I'm just saying, like, if you, if you are deeply convicted, though, that, you, that psalmody only is what we call it, psalmody only. Psalms only being sung, you're deeply convicted of this, and this is the only way to do it. You might not be able to remain here for long. And that's okay. And that's okay. We've come to different conclusions on that. And your conscience is, is hurt by, by those things. But look, that's not us saying we're so staunchly divided that we can no longer have any cooperation whatsoever. That's not how that works. We, dis- we disagree on one, on one thing. No, we may not be able to sit in the same service at all times. Maybe we have a Psalms-only Sunday at some point, and you're like, hey, we could go to that. We could come and hang out. Awesome. But, but I don't... I don't Sorry. I don't want you to hear that like we should divide over every single thing. Like I said, I'm saying that we should try our best not to. But when we do, let's maintain the bonds of friendship, the bonds of charity, the bonds that we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We may introduce a degree of separation, but it is not division. We still work with one another. There's a reason that we're a part of the SBC. The SBC is a very broad umbrella. All you really have to do is be kind of baptistic. I mean, like that, that is the way that I would put it. It's a big umbrella. But we, we work together because we agree in the gospel. That's a good thing. I think we should participate across even those denominational lines. This principle of separation, though, when applied absolutely leads to the same place as the principle of tolerance when applied absolutely. There's no church at all. No church. If you apply the principle of tolerance absolutely, and I used the, the illustration of doors, and you open the doors so wide that there are no doors at all, that means there's no church. Likewise, if you subdivide until you find perfect agreement, you only got one person in your church. It's you. I would argue that the only person who ever had the right to have just himself in a church is Jesus. So what do we do? What do we do? Because look, Satan would love to see the church do either of these things. He'd love to push us toward absolute tolerance. He would love to push us toward absolute division. So what do we do? How do we, how do we subvert Satan? First, I want you to remember that the church is gospel community. We are formed by the good news that Jesus died for sinners, and we are united in that. If we are united in nothing else, not just as a local church, but as the body of Christ, if we are united in nothing else, we are united in that. That's a good thing. Christ is not divided. In light of that, then we must apply the principle of charity and grace toward one another. When there is a disagreement, then seek agreement. And if agreement can't be found, remember the bigger things you agree on. Remember that the person and work of Jesus Christ is sufficient for you and that other person. And in remembering his grace toward you, give that same grace back to them. Because look, 
you're a wretched sinner. God disagrees with you. Did you know that? Did you know that God disagrees with you? He loves you anyway, and he brought you into his, into his kingdom, and he is forming you into the image of Christ. How good is that? Maybe we should do a little bit of that for one another. And this isn't, I want you to hear, hear me very clearly, this is not an encouragement to silence about disagreements. But it's an encouragement to deep, amicable, loving conversation, diving into the scriptures together and loving one another in all the mess that comes out. Because it does get messy when you deal with people and sin. But it's good. It's good. Corinthians had forgotten that they were one body. Don't do not do not make the same mistake. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are not your enemies. Don't act like it on Twitter. Don't act like it on Facebook. You can have conversations all day on those platforms, sure. I, I know that you can. But remember that people are reading those things that are outside the church. Be decent to one another, even those people that you disagree with. Be decent. Treat them like family. No, maybe treat them like friends, depending on how you feel about family sometimes. But they're, part, they're parts of the same body that you inhabit. Parts of the same body. And remember that as members of that same body, we can serve different functions and have different gifts. Maybe that's part of the problem. Romans 12, 4 through 8 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all individually have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ. They differ. That's difference. According to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, if to the one who teaches his, in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. It may be that those with whom you disagree are merely distinct from you rather than divided from you. Does that make some sense? Like, my finger is different from my arm. It's different from my eye. Maybe we're all parts of the same body. Rather than making accusations, we could seek for communication because when we're working together, that's when we can be most effective. And I would say... But on, on those matters of, of true disagreement, I would say only as last resort should we begin to introduce degrees of separation between one another. And even then, we should do so with a spirit of charity and with, of unity in Christ. There's a, a man who was quoted as saying this, and I, I, I am closing, I promise. I know this has been a longer sermon, but hey, you get me started on ecclesiology, guess what happens? Um, there's a man who, who, who wrote a, a a certain phrase uh, in Latin. I, I didn't put it in my notes because who understands Latin? Some of you maybe, but not me. Um, translated, it simply says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I'll say it again in case you want to write down the quote. It's by Rupertus Mildenius, uh, which is a pseudonym, I think, for another guy. Anyway, but he said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I think that, that last phrase is really what we need to work on in this culture. Like, I think we can, 
we can work on essentials and non-essentials. We can differ on those things. We do okay at that sometimes, but like maybe not. And and that's the charity part, like where you vehemently disagree with someone. Remember that they're brother, sister in Christ, and extend to them the same level of grace, forgiveness, and charity that God has bestowed upon you. Let love and, and unity win over petty disputes. If you have something against your brother or your sister, go to them. Have a conversation. Let the good of your brother win over prideful, the prideful need to, to be right. How many of y'all have felt that before? I know I have. The prideful desire to be right. You know you can be right and still be wrong? Have conversations, not fights. That was the problem. There were disputes. There were, there were these quarrels in Corinth, but have a, have a conversation. Determine to agree then wherever possible, and when not possible, determine to continue to cooperate in other areas. Have you ever thought about that? People tend to just go, oh, I disagree with you on this. Put you on the shelf. Don't want to talk to you anymore. Let's not do that. Part of the same body. I say it all the time. Uh, at, at, this is just an aside. but um, I say it all the time at work. Same team. Same team. Right? Um, if, we, if we approach disagreements with that attitude of charity, though, that attitude of love toward one another, and we seek to preserve unity while allowing for individual conscience, we might just find that the church is more united than it sometimes seems. And we might just find that God is moving us toward greater unity despite all the dysfunction and disunity we see in our culture and in the world today. If you've been hurt by a division, though, I, you, you are probably deeply wounded by this. But I want you to remember that Christ died for those sinners just like he died for you. That hurts sometimes to hear. It may be that he will bring you back into fellowship, and it might even be this side of heaven. That's big news to some of you. Trust God to work. Just follow Christ in seeking the unity of the body of Christ. And so from, from here forward, let's determine to treat one another as fellow citizens of heaven as people saved by grace into the body of Christ and as members of that same body. Can we do that? I'm going to pray for us that God would unify us in this pursuit, that he would bring us together, and that, that we would ultimately just experience the unity that he has for us, and that we would love one another across all of those places where we might otherwise be divided. Because I know that, I know that he has broken down every dividing wall of hostility. I'm going to pray that he would do that even more today. Lord God, I pray that this morning you would be glorified as we seek unity, as we seek oneness in the body of Christ. I pray, Lord God, that you would remind us this morning that we are not separate bodies though we may refer to the local church as such. But Lord, we are one body. Lord, help us in this local church to be as united as possible. Lord God, beyond all of our comprehensions, beyond all of our natural inclinations, Lord, 
we pray a supernatural bond amongst us, that we would be true spiritual brothers and sisters, and that we would be members of that same body, and that, Lord, we would work together for the sake of your kingdom. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to go from this place in that same mentality. Love brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we disagree. Let us come to agreement, Lord God. Give us the opportunity to have conversations. Give us the boldness to do so. But Lord, help us to, to do everything in charity. For Lord, you have been gracious to us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.